For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Tell. Uh, as you're well aware, I'm sure, because you teach students, uh, a lot of people don't really pay attention to economics, but one <laughs> economic number they always pay attention to, you just mentioned it, when they consume goods, when they have to pay for goods, that means inflation, that means gas prices. Those are the two things that consistently break through. Uh, just turn the noise down for us for a minute. What are you looking at when you look at the buzzwords of inflation and gas prices in the social media realm or the news realm? What are you looking at and what are you trying to tell people like, okay, that's, that's the term and yes, this is happening, but here's what we actually need to be dealing with. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk about inflation right now. Everyone's feeling it in lots of different ways. Uh, when you see a number such as the consumer price index, which is the most commonly used measure of inflation that is used uh, out there, both in the media and often by economists as well. Uh, you know, a number like that, I think, is, is useful as a, as a first cut at, you know, how are things right now? How might inflation now compared to a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago? Uh, but I think it's always useful to kind of drill down into that number and to see what, what's causing it, right? So if the price of, you know, we say that the, the consumer price index is up 8.5% or so over the past year, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean everything's up 8.5%? Well, no, it does not. Uh, some things are up more than that, right? If you look at the price of a lot of different kinds of meat, they're up 15 to 20%. Uh, but other things might be going up not quite as fast. So if we're thinking about how does inflation affect a typical person or a typical household, uh, we need to know what sorts of things uh, is that household consuming. And everyone doesn't have the same consumption pattern, right? If we look at, say, you know, my industry, college tuition, right? This is a number of people follow a lot. Uh, well, most people aren't paying college tuition for, you know, 40 years, right? People are paying college tuition for five or six years, or if they go to grad school, maybe up to 10 years. They might be paying off the student loans from those, you know, over a longer period of time. Uh, but for most people, you know, what happened to the price of college tuition last month is not really relevant to, to their budget, right? So we want to know what sorts of numbers are relevant. Uh, certainly the price of housing is relevant, right? For most households, this is going to be 20, 30, or 40% of their budget is going to go to housing. Again, housing is so varied across this country, both in how much it costs and how much it's increasing, right? Some, some markets are really hot now and prices might be up 40 or 50% compared to before the pandemic. Others have seen more mild increases, uh, but we wanna know how's that affecting people's budgets? How's that relate to, importantly, how much have their wages gone up? This is the other important thing to remember about inflation is that, well, yes, prices are going up, but if your wages are going up just as much, it's not as much of a, of a, of a burden on you. Uh, but if your wages aren't going up as fast as inflation, that's what really matters to you, right? 
I mean, let's say inflation was 100% every year. Now, that would seem crazy and a totally different reality from where we are now. But if your wages were going up 200% every year, uh, for you as a worker who's, who's seeing those wage increases, 100% inflation is no big deal if your wages are doing better than that. But even at just you know, a mild rate of inflation, 5%, uh, if your wages are only going up 1%, then that really does hurt you. So we need to compare these two things and we need to think about how does it uh, look for whatever type of household we want to analyze, whether it's you know, millennials, they're just kind of getting into the workforce, buying their first home, whether it's the boomers who are just getting into retirement or the next generation, Gen Z or whatever we're going to eventually call them, you know, they're, they're just graduating from college. You know, I teach college and, and we just had our graduation on Saturday and you've got a couple thousand kids that are now being kind of dumped into the workforce. You know, how are they going to do? You know, we want to know all the prices that matter to each of those different types of, of households is very different. So one number like the CPI is, is a useful one to look at, but it should never be kind of the final word of what's going on with inflation. Yeah, and another one of those numbers, uh, Dr. Jeremy Horvadal, an economist joining us on Hertel, another one of those numbers that it gets a lot of play in the media, but it affects people greatly. It really helps some folks. It's really going to hurt other folks. Uh, talk about interest rates for just a second, because that's a number some people are going to love that it's going up. I know a lot of economists have been almost screaming that it needs to go up, but that also <laughs> greatly affects a lot of people in very, very real day-to-day, -day, almost week-to-week, -week, every paycheck kind of ways, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about interest rates, we always have to realize just like prices, there are lots of different interest rates, right? So there's an interest rate uh, that you might earn from a savings account, and that's very low today. There's interest rates you're going to pay, such as an interest rate uh, on buying a new house, right? If you buy a new house today, the interest rate you're going to pay is very much higher than it would have been if you bought a house a year ago. Uh, but there's also interest rates uh, that the Federal Reserve Bank is going to loan money to banks at, sometimes on a very short-term basis. Uh, so that's, that's actually a key interest rate, what the Federal Reserve Bank is doing uh, with the interest rate that they are going to be setting in markets for banks, essentially lending money to each other. As that interest rate changes, as they increase that interest rate, that's going to have effects that are going to go across the economy. Right? So as the Fed starts raising interest rates that they set, that's going to affect things like mortgage rates, and it's going to affect things like the, how much you're going to be paid on a savings account. Um, so we need to think about, you know, why is the Fed doing this, right? And as you said, why are some economists finally cheering that they're doing this? Uh, the reason for that is one of the main policy tools the Federal Reserve Bank has to get inflation down, now that inflation is kind of out of control, uh, is to raise that interest rate. That's one of the main ways they have of impacting the economy. Uh, it's not the only way they have, and there's, there's other things Congress could potentially do, but as far as the Federal Reserve Bank, that's the main thing they're going to do uh, to try to both, you know, when you're in a slow economy, they're going to lower that interest rate to try to speed up the economy in a sense. Uh, but when prices start going up, they're going to then raise that interest rate to try to slow down the rate of money growth, which then should slow down uh, how much prices are going up. Uh, but there's, it's a very, you know, kind of challenging thing to do. There's a kind of a long lag between when they change interest rates and when it'll actually affect prices. It's not an instantaneous thing, even though it might instantaneously affect mortgage rates. Um, so these two things, you know, you mentioned interest rates, it's very much connected to the prices we were just talking about earlier. Yeah, talking to Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, an economist out at the University of Central Arkansas in beautiful Conway, Arkansas. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to drill down 
on one of those prices, gas prices and some things that have been going on both in the administrative and in the social uh, discussion field about how those things work. Also want to talk to him about those college kids getting ready to come out because we do that every year and we don't talk about them enough. More economics with our friend, Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl, right after this on Herd Tech. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We are talking economics. Our friend Dr. Jeremy Horpendahl is going to explain some of his big number, big math stuff to me like I'm five, so even I can understand it. Uh, here's one that folks get wrong a lot, even though they're invested in it because it hits them directly daily. Gas prices, you've been doing some writing about this in Real Clear uh, Policy. Real quick, though, just so we have our nomenclature right, we talk about it, but break it down. What actually affects gas prices? Why is that what we call a lagging indicator? No, it doesn't just what happened today doesn't show up at the pump tomorrow. This is stuff from six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago. Just real quick in a nutshell so that we have the right terminology, what is gas prices actually reflecting? Yeah, that's that's a really important thing to think about, right? Like where does this number come from? We see it at the pump, right? We don't, and not just at the pump, we see it as we drive by a gas station, right? It's posted everywhere, right? So everyone's very keenly aware of this and it certainly affects people's budgets. Um, you know, economists, of course, love to talk about supply and demand, right? And I think that both of those factors are important here. Uh, number one is there is coming out of the pandemic as, as most countries are now, uh, there's a huge increase in demand for all sorts of things, but especially for traveling, right? Both by car, uh, by airplane. Uh, and those are two industries which are gonna be purchasing a lot of gasoline. It's necessary for them uh, to uh, have those uh, moving forward, of course. So what that means is that part of what's going on uh, is that people are just wanting to buy a lot more. But that's also hitting up to the other half of it that economists like to talk about, and that is the supply, right? So there's the supply of gasoline, uh, which is certainly being affected by the events in Ukraine, uh, as well as countries reacting to that, to that war by uh, either embargoing Russian imports or other things related to that. So that's certainly a part of it. But gas prices had been going up uh, long before that began, uh, going up throughout most of, of last year of 2021. Uh, so what other factors might there be? And here's where I think the, the, the essay you mentioned I wrote for Real Clear Policy really I tried to explain this in, in, in a pretty simple way, uh, is that you know, when you have this increase in demand, uh, what we would normally expect for, for most markets is an increase in supply, right? As people demand more, the price goes up, and then there should be more oil put on the market, which eventually turns into more gasoline, and the prices then should come down, we should get back to some sort of equilibrium uh, as that happens. But this doesn't happen instantaneously, right? You can't instantly just suddenly find more oil or, or create more gasoline. There's a long production process that's involved in both extracting the oil, finding new oil. Certainly when the price of oil goes up, uh, there are 
reserves of oil that weren't profitable to extract before that now are. Uh, but again, there's a, there's a time lag. So what's been kind of building up in the you know, past year as we've been coming out of, of the pandemic in the US and, and other countries are as well, is that we've had a big increase in demand, uh, but the, the supply side takes a long time to catch up. And then in the middle of that is when you have the Ukraine war coming on, uh, coming online. And then that just kind of really just, just topples it over, right? There's uh, wherever we'd be getting the new supply from, there's now just less oil available in the entire global market. And so that just really uh, then kind of, you know, right in February and March, prices just started skyrocketing, right? I think in a few weeks, prices at the pump went up by a dollar a gallon, and it was just a really dramatic increase in a short amount of time. But that was the buildup of a lot of things which have been happening in this very weird economy we have right now, post-pandemic or kind of still in the pandemic, that, uh, that, that all that's kind of coming together. And then consumers end up seeing it at the pump, right? So I think maybe next we'll talk about, you know, what is there anything we can do about that, right? There's a lot of, a lot of people suggesting things we can do, but that's, that's kind of the, the basics of, you know, what's, what I think is going on with that market right now. Yeah. And you start talking about things like price control. We've seen some op-eds. We see some talking heads discussing it. We've even heard it from some of the White House staff folks. Um, not in that terminology, but that's what they're talking about when they're talking about manipulating the price. Here's the problem. Uh, we've seen this movie. We know about the gas shortages in the 70s. That got hung around Carter's neck. But the part of that story folks don't talk about is a lot of the mess that Carter was dealing with was actually Nixon instituted price controls on a whole bunch of stuff before him in the 60s. We have a history of this in the United States of America at, with price controls. You're the economist. You explain it to me. That history is not a good one, correct? Yeah, that's right. So like you said, there have been some people that have been saying that, well, one thing we could do perhaps in some markets is institute price controls of various sorts to try to bring down certain prices like gasoline. Uh, the problem with that is that doesn't solve any of the problems. So all the problems I mentioned that are causing prices to go up the price control doesn't solve any of those problems. So if we were to put in a, you know, Congress were to you know, wake up today and pass a law saying that the most you can charge for gasoline is whatever it was a year ago, right? Realizing different markets are different prices. Arkansas is different from California. Uh, but, uh, you know, if Congress said you got to charge the prices that existed a year ago, what would that mean? Well, none of the underlying reality has changed about more people wanting gasoline, about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, what you're essentially doing is trying to mask the problem. But what that then creates is an additional problem, uh, which is, like you mentioned, the 70s, you get shortages of goods like gasoline, uh, meaning that there just is not enough available. Uh, what that price rising does, right, an important part of prices rising from an economist's perspective, is to make it so that uh, people are going to use less where they can. Now, of course, we can never cut back 100%, but use less where we can. Um, and it's going to try to get more oil on the market. Uh, if you put a cap on that, whether it's the retail price of gasoline, whether it's the price of oil, what that means is you're going to screw up the market trying to react to this, right? You're not going to tell consumers to stop using it, which is what the higher price tells consumers to do. And you're not going to encourage more producers to put more oil or gasoline on the market. And you're going to create this additional problem of shortages, uh, which would mean what we would see at the pump is not high prices, but what we would see is long lines. We would see people lined up. Uh, because there's stations run out of gasoline and you don't want to not have gasoline. I mean, imagine today, you know, the challenge with electric cars is doing a cross-country trip, right? For short trips, electric cars are actually really good. But am I going to find a charging station if I'm trying to do a 400-mile trip? Uh, if you have shortages of gasoline, it's actually the same problem. 
Yeah, and we're seeing it now. Uh, Jin Young Kwok is joining us down from Australia. Uh, we're seeing this a little bit out of the Russia situation where they're getting sanctioned. Uh, what happens with these autocratic dictatorial regimes is because of the corruption, because it's a dictatorship, it, it stifles innovation. It stifles creative freedom. So somewhere like Russia, we, we found out now once they start putting sanctions on, you know, the system collapses pretty quickly because it's all cronyism. It's not really a bottom up innovative society. Uh, how much does government pressure or a dictatorial pressure in these cases uh, talk about how that affects wealth generation? Because it'll affect a lot of wealth for a very, very small amount of people. But it's because the system is just funneling money. It's not actually generating wealth in the way like an American does or like uh, the England and Europe of the last century did. These places where we've seen great uh, Japan of the last 60, 70 years, Germany post-World War II, these places that really explode in economic growth and economic freedom. Uh, you're not getting that in a dictatorship or an autocratic society because you just can't, can you? No, you just can't. And I think a really good example is China. Um, in the Mao Zedong era, there was a cultural um, uh, leap and um, it actually ended in um, a, a, a huge massacre of innocent lives. And that's because of dictatorship. So um, China only started to become um, and uh, uh, become an economic powerhouse when they started embracing um, parts of capitalism. And who knows how much they can achieve if they fully embrace um, the free market. But, um, but, but in recent news, we can see that um, the current uh, president, Xi Jinping, he is looking to tighten reins um, to, he's hunting down on the, the wealthy, the affluent, and I think it's only a matter of time before we see China experiencing what they experienced um, during Mao Zedong's era. Now, the thing with China is they've got a built-in advantage on the world economic stage that's letting them kind of be the exception to the rule about that is because they have a workforce of three quarters of a billion people. They have a workforce of 750,000, 750 million people, excuse me that are, for all extensive purposes, pretty much under government control. They can control where they work, where they put their industry, these things. And that has been the real secret to the economic might of China. And I don't think people talk about it, that a lot of it's just a sheer math problem of like, hey, we've got the biggest workforce in the world, and we also have complete and total control of that workforce. Yes, and um, it, it, is, it is simply quite... Um... I think China itself is a very interesting topic, um, but at the same time, I do think that uh, if uh, if 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 China, if the president of China were to um, uh, carry out even more restrictive policies, it will um, the 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 sheer the sheer mass of the country will not be able to help um, the economic progress. Um, and I think we can see that from history. Um, during Mao Zedong's era, there were, there were a lot of people as well, but um, they, were, they were still living in poverty. And um, you can see, you can, um, when you look up uh, a lot of people's, um, uh, people, when you, when you look 
when you look up people who have survived the cultural revolution, you will find that um, you will find that they have learned to embrace capitalism in Western countries, and it doesn't help that it doesn't help that uh, that China is is taking a step towards capitalism because they understand that um, it is only a matter of time before um, things go back to the way they were. Yeah, talking to our friend Quack over in Australia. Uh, why is it? I know we talk about the human rights issues China has currently today, and we understand that their economic might is buying their excuses and ex- and uh, enabling them to do that because people don't want to, you know, they don't want to break up the cash cow that China is. Why isn't something you talked about the Cultural Revolution? Uh, the Great Leap Forward is quite possibly the greatest single human caused disaster and extinction of people and life in the history of the world. And we don't really talk about that much. I know China censors that a lot of it, but you're just talking about 20, 25 million people starving to death, basically on purpose. Why do you think that's not more in our collective consciousness as the world, especially in the West, where we're usually pretty good with stuff like human rights, but we just never talk about the great leap forward. And this is one of the most horrific things in all of human history. I think uh, I think perhaps a lot of countries, I think a lot of countries don't want to jeopardize their economic ties with um, China, because they understand that um, even just by the sheer mass of the country, um, it it will be quite difficult for us to, for any countries to, uh, to address this without uh, you know triggering the, um, triggering China. I I think. Uh, it was really interesting because I, I read a I. It was really it was it, I read an interesting article by the Prime Minister of Singapore Lee Hsien Long, and he was uh, he he basically gave an in depth um, uh, analysis on um, trade ties between Singapore and the U.S. and China, and what he really strives for is. Um, the perfect balance between um, not agitating China while maintaining good ties with the states, and I think perhaps a lot of um, perhaps world world leaders um, all over the world are trying to do the same thing. Um, and while this does make sense economically, it doesn't do anything to address um, uh, the problems that China faces. Yeah, talking to our friend Quack from over in Australia. We're going to take a quick break. We come back on Hotel. We're going to continue to talk about poverty and wealth generation, a little economics. Going to take a look at it from the perspective of immigration, two things that are always tied together is economics and immigration. We'll talk about that right after the break on Hotel. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We're having a great talk with our friend uh, Zinian Quack from down in Australia. She's originally from Singapore, though, and that's kind of where we want to go with this conversation about economics and wealth generation and poverty. Uh, there's just no way to talk about the world economic story and not talk about immigration, uh, especially Western countries. Uh, you're living in Australia, which was a completely immigration other than the Aboriginal peoples heavy immigration. Uh, America, of course, is one of the great immigrant stories in all of human history. 
why is it just for people to understand because immigration brings certain people's priors and they get their backs up a little bit why is immigration and economics so inexorably linked together i think um i think if when you look back at countries that are incredibly wealthy you think of australia you think of hong kong um the states of course and singapore and these countries uh these countries are built by these countries as wealth are uh, created by immigrants by ex- allowing immigrants to come in and be productive so when so i think the the most common misconception um of immigration is that um uh people strongly believe in the zero sum um uh theory but that's not true they believe there's a lot of people who are against immigration believe that um they believe that once immigrants immigrants come in they're going to take uh, uh this the locals jobs but they don't um and you can see that uh, you can you can you can tell that immigrants in fact boost productivity and economic growth um when you look at example when you look at um examples of um businessmen who um who who come who are, who come from a different country wanting to open wanting to start their business in your country and that's when they bring about new jobs um my favorite example is um this this founder of a hot pot company from china um haidi lao some of you may have heard of it um he once he made it in china he decided to migrate to singapore so now he's a singaporean citizen and while many are not quite receptive to immigrants coming they cannot deny the fact that um this businessman coming to singapore um drives business to um singapore and um it in turn creates jobs for singaporeans and this in turn boosts um productivity uh lowers unemployment rate and keeps us all happy yeah here in the states because of covid we have this really weird economic thing we've been talking about with our economic friends when they come on the program of we have a really low unemployment rate and we have a labor shortage which doesn't make sense in traditional economics but then part of the story of that is when you go look at the data from the last two and a half years immigration has pretty much stopped from a dead standstill some of it from covid some of it from other reasons and boy howdy wouldn't you know that those gap numbers almost dead line up with the immigration that stopped and people i think maybe didn't realize that oh there's certain jobs that the immigrant classes come in and they fill these jobs and just nobody else is doing them that really was a thing and when covid hit all of a sudden people found that out uh that's that is an unfortunate reality i think um i think the the states uh i think i think the states was once um a vibrant immig- uh, place for uh, what was i think the states was once very um open to immigration but that's not the case anymore and it's the same in australia there are a lot of um policies uh, regarding immigration that deter that deter um that really deter immigrants foreign workers from bring, from being product, productive and um i think an example from australia is that at one point um uh because of covid 
Australia, the Australian borders were not um, uh, open to those on bridging visas. And bridging visas is a type of visa that you, you receive when you've applied for a work visa in Australia. So because a lot of these um, work visa applications have not been approved, a lot of people were um, working in working in Australia under a bridging visa and because of the COVID, they went home. And um, when the government uh, didn't allow these people to come back in, um, they they saw uh, this, they, this, they witnessed the disastrous um, uh, outcome, which is that they didn't realize um, the aged care sector actually comprised mainly of um, foreign workers. So when this happened, um, the the aged care sector um, uh, lost a lot of uh, lost a lot of its um, staff and employees, and um, this resulted in deaths that could have been prevented. But because of the government's um, rigid um, immigration policies, uh, I think we're beginning to see the economic consequences. Why do people talking to our friend Quack? Um, people just talk about immigrations with like borders and people coming and going really the conversation with immigration, especially legal immigration. We're not talking about illegal immigration, which everybody agrees that you shouldn't have that. You have to have, you know, standards, you got to have voice. But when you're talking legal immigration, the part that has to be cohesive is some kind of a program, whether it's a visa program, a green card program, a sponsorship program, however you're going to do it. They have to have jobs and they have to have uh, inroads into the economy or the immigration is not going to work properly as far as economic development goes. You have countries like Australia, which are extremely restrictive with their visas. Uh, the EU is getting very restricted with their visas. We noticed the, the problem with the refugees with the Ukrainians is they're arguing over whether or not, you know, do they get a 90 day work permit or do they get a two year work exemption? You know, things like that's the discussion you have. Why in people's minds do they not put those two things together when really that should be the conversation when you're talking about legal immigration of not just the numbers you're letting in, but who you're letting in, which kind of skilled labor, which kind of skilled professionals, and how to get them into the workforce in a permanent way and fast track that process, because that's really what determines whether or not immigration is successful or not more than the other factors, doesn't it? Um, I think there are two possibilities. I think when policymakers uh, come up with uh, immigration policies that do not account for short-term, medium-term, long-term effects. Um, you, can, you, can, you can wonder to yourself, are they actually that short-sighted? Or do they simply just not want immigration? I think that's the biggest question. And we'll never know because, well, we're not the government, but I think that is a question that a lot of people need to think about. Governments usually, government policies are usually reflective of um, their audience, which is us, the citizens. So is it could be it could be due to um, general consensus in this in the public, or it could be it could just be like a big conspiracy. I think that's that's a really really big topic.
since we're talking prices, let's talk supply side for just a second. I was sitting behind a train yesterday. I was watching all those containers go by the double stacked on the train. Um, we talked a lot about supply side stuff. We talked about a, a supply side inflationary curve back during the pandemic. We're moved on from that a little bit. What's the data saying about that? Is that lingering into what's going on now or did it wash out? And now we're dealing with more of the oncoming traffic, as you said, as opposed to the rear ending part. So we still have supply chain issues that are still driving up some of these, these the challenges. We can still see that the price of a lumber is exceedingly elevated. And we know the price of some stuff coming from Asia is still elevated and we still have backlogs. So, you know, uh, the data that we're seeing is showing that those effects are, are, are mediating. They're, they're getting, you know, less bad over time, but they're not coming down as fast as we would hope. And this is part of the problem and as we want. And part of it is because you know, this isn't, you know, COVID was an international event. And as much as we want to criticize the U.S. policy response under both Trump and Biden, um, and sort of also the sort of uh, the response of the American public, um, compared to uh, a lot of other countries in the world, particularly in Asia, um, in some of the Asian countries, some Asian countries did great, but some of the Asian countries where we get a lot of our imports from, uh, not so great. Uh, take up of vaccines is not as good as what we have here. So, so another it's getting gra- better. Another it's getting better. Thing. It's getting better, but it's getting better slower than we would expect. Much like the cold that I had took a lot longer than I wanted for it to, for me to get over it. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a fence quoted from my backyard, and they won't even quote you wood fencing right now. They said nobody can afford it anyway, and it would take us too long to get it, so we don't even bother quoting it right now. That's how bad the wood is. I, I'm trying to build an addition, a, 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 an ADU accessory dwelling unit um, on on my property. Uh, and, you know, we're having the architect drop the plans now. Um, I'm not anticipating starting construction on that until maybe mid next year. Wow. Yeah, it's a mess. Uh, talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend. Uh, let's talk about one other item you kind of you mentioned in there and kind of skirted by it for just a second, though. Inflation and prices. Everybody thinks they're necessarily coupled together, but that's not exactly the truth. They're not exactly dead set together. Talk about the relationship there with the prices a consumer sees on the shelves and inflation, because there is some lag there. There's some waves to those sorts of things. Talk about that because everybody just assumes, well, well, inflation and prices are linked together. They go up and they go up. That's not exactly, it's a little more nuanced than that, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think the nuance is it depends on what type of uh, U.S. household you are. Um, if you're a household that owns your home on a fixed rate mortgage, property price increase, property price you know, appreciation, inflation, rent inflation doesn't really affect you, right? And that's a huge part of your budget. Now, if you're a renter or you're someone trying to buy and you have to buy because maybe you have to move to a city because you got a job there, right? That's going to weigh pretty heavily on you. That's going to be a pretty big impact on your budget. Um, if you're, again, like we saw this for a long time, we talked about the used car market. If you were someone who couldn't afford a new car and you need to buy a used car, you were paying a lot of money for that. Um, if you're someone whose household consumes lots of energy, uh, maybe you have a lot of little rugrats running around, um, you, you're, you're subject to a lot more inflation than, say, uh, a, a childless couple or you know, a single person living at home or, or just a couple with one kid, you know. Um, so pr- the, the, these, these price changes affect people differently, you know. It also depends on where you shop. Like certain retailers are going to see higher price increases than others because of how they source their supply chains. 
So, you know, if you shop at Costco, maybe it's, uh, when you're in that demographic, you're, you're not so affected. And I think that's sort of, you know, where we might lose track as, as policymakers up here in DC is we're in a particular kind of bubble. Most of us are homeowners. Most of us do buy from Costco. You know, most of us are fairly insulated from a lot of the costs that uh, a lot of Americans outside of these big cities uh, are dealing with. And we have to sort of keep that in mind. And I understand, you know, why there's some, some angst there and why there's desire to bring that back down. You know, again, the trade-off was, did you want to be working, right, and have a job and not be out of work? Or do we want to face these high prices? I would take the higher prices as, as, a, as a choice every day over over leaving people long-term unemployed and just i think that destroys families far more than you know what i hope is you know maybe another year of dealing with price changes that are coming down but still elevated and maybe we get back to normal next year right yeah. if that's the choice that, that I'm, I'm happy with the temporary pain there yeah jericho hill but, our economist friend uh breaking this down so even i can understand it. we're going to take a quick break we come back gotcha. on hotel we'll get into more of this economic stuff we'll get into the politics of it it is an election year i'm going to ask him a little bit of rapid fire see what an economist thinks about some of the campaign lingo that we're going to be hearing over the next couple months jericho hill on hotel right after Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, uh, in the fancy dancy graphic print t-shirt, because that's what all the economists are wearing these days. Uh, Let me Jericho- bust out my tariff shirt sometime that we got uh, Senator Orrin Hatch to wear. Scott <laughs> Lennoncom would love it. Yeah, the late the late Senator Orrin Hatch, God bless him. Mm-hmm. Uh, great Twitter follow, by the way. I uh, don't think his replacement will be nearly as fun. No. Um, <laughs> uh, let's let's talk economy for just a second. This is an election year, so I want to ask you a couple of things. Since yep. you're the economist and I'm not, I just want I'm going to throw you some of the buzzwords we're going to hear because let's be honest, this is the eighth or ninth most important election of my lifetime uh, to be followed by the tenth <laughs> most important election of the lifetime next week. We hear the exact. Same, I agree with you on that. I am with you a hundred percent. Yeah, we hear the same economic terminology every election. So I'm just going to ask you how they land with you when you hear them on a campaign ad. Um, You're there in Northern Virginia, so I'm sure your airwaves are all campaign commercials right now. It's pretty brutal where I'm at. Um, So let's hit a couple of these real quick. Um, Just be glad you're not in Georgia. uh, We, Our friend uh, Jason Downey just had him on the program talking about it, and he said, you know, there is nothing but campaign ads right now. I was just talking to a radio buddy. He was like, yeah, I hate it. He's like, all my commercials on the radio station, but it's paying the bills. We paid the whole quarter off in one ad buy. Thank you, Club for Growth. Um, Anyway, uh, let's hit some of these items. Okay, when you hear a campaign talk about lower taxes, how does that hit your economic ears? Because a congressman, a senator, even a governor – they don't really have a whole lot of say over tax policy, but each and every one of them always campaign on tax policy. How does it hit your economic ears when you hear that on a commercial? They can campaign on what their state and local locality can control, which is typically uh, uh, sales tax or property tax, right? Uh, some states have income taxes, but not very many. Um, you know, I would say um, we're dealing with inflation right now. So sort of the last thing we need to really do is to uh, do a... a, a uh, a tax decrease, which will put more money uh, back into the economy at a time we're trying to take money out of the economy and slow price growth. Uh, you know, I, I get it. I get wanting to, to have lower taxes for folks, especially folks that might be hurting. But right, that could that could backfire. That could send 
inflation up. But then again, maybe these governors don't care about that because the inflation is Biden's problem. It's that's it, not the governor's problem. Yeah. Speaking of inflation, every election I've ever had, it is uh, Reaganomics, the Clinton economy, the Bush economy, the Bush recession, uh, the Obama recession. You see where I'm going with this. It's always like this. The Trump tax Biden cuts, inflation. whatever. So now we're going to deal with the Biden economy, the Biden inflation. When you hear that terminology, because we hear it every election year, whoever's in the chair, they get blamed for the economy. How does that hit your economic years? Um, a lot of what we're dealing with are, were things outside of our control in the in the country because we were dealing with a you know worldwide pandemic. So it's somewhat unfair to pin it all on, on Biden's policies, but it's also fair to pin a bit of it on him. And I think, you know, especially like, you know, hey, they they wanted to get a lot of money they right into the economy to basically make sure the unemployment got back uh, to low levels that, that folks that we had. Um, and that's the consequence. And so they made policy choices that that created the inflation too that helped bring it along. So they deserve part of the, the blame on this. Not all of it, but but part of it. But hey, that's the brakes of being the guy in charge. Another one that's the brakes of the guy in charge because it is a lagging indicator, no matter what anybody else tells you about gas prices. Uh, now, obviously, there's a there's a caveat to this one because the president campaigned on reducing fossil fuels. That means they reduce output, they reduce plenty. So that some of that is on him. But there was the war on Ukraine. That's going to crank things up. When you hear about gas prices and the, we're going to fix the gas prices and the Biden did that stickers on all the gas pumps I keep seeing all over the place. How does that hit your economic years? I mean, look, this is sort of the two-faced nature of politics, right? You said Biden, you know, was, you know, campaigning for cleaner energy. He was to to sort of reduce our reliance on gas-powered cars and whatnot and bring in more electrified vehicles. That clearly was a policy choice. That would imply that we'd have less capacity for, for gas and that would be a, a, an upward pressure on prices. And then, you know, they also want to release a bunch of oil barrels from a strategic reserve to lessen that, which sort of goes against the um, policy choice. Again, like, Maybe it's bad politics, but you know when you and I talk, like I just feel like owning what the what what your goal is and stating clearly what the trade-offs are to that you're going to get to the goal. So hey, we want cleaner vehicles, we want a cleaner environment, uh, we want to reduce our reliance on gas, we want to reduce our reliance on Russian energy. Good goals. Guess what? There are consequences to that. Yeah. I, again, like you know. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, two thirds, you know, world phenomena, one third Biden's to blame, you know, like he's got to own some of it. Yeah. I just, I just wish that we could be more honest about this. Yeah. Here's one that we need to be more honest about that we talk about every single time. I'm going to bring back manufacturing jobs. Now, I always would love for one enterprising reporter to ask them when they're going to bring back tooling and ball bearings because you're not having any manufacturing in the country until we bring those two things back. And we don't do those in America anymore because you got to have that to have the bigger manufacturing. But when you hear manufacturing, that's a big thing in economics because of the indicators for it. It's something that America has declined in doing, and we import it more than we export it. How do you hear we're going to bring back those manufacturing jobs? I mean, look, the developed world has moved those jobs to the developing world. Uh, that was a choice set made by pretty much every country. Um, the leading edge industries are not manufacturing and, and will not be. Those are not manufacturers, not the driver of growth anymore. It used to be, but the world and the economy changed. I would hope that our policymakers who want to keep the U.S. focused on delivering those drivers of economic growth to produce jobs, both high skill and low skill, down the line, 
you know, in these emerging technologies, you know, in these emerging, you know, industries, that's where we, that would be good policy. So like I, I, I get for the industrial workers in say West Virginia, right? You, you have, you know, coal, we're not, coal's not coming back. Like, you know, auto manufacturing to like what it was in the eighties is not coming back. And politicians should just simply be honest about that. And we should work to sort of think about how do we shift our job training? How do we shift our educational system to produce workers that will thrive in that new economy? And thinking 10, 20 years down the road. Look, I 20 years ago, I was working. I mean, you had the you had you know, your guests from the from the from the Board of Education. I was a student member of the Board of Regents of the state of Georgia. I was pushing for policies that would increase funding for our community colleges and small local colleges in Georgia because their infrastructure, their, what they had available in the classrooms for, for students to learn was just paltry. And that's where a lot of our, you know, sort of um, um, skilled jobs, not necessarily college educated, but skilled trade jobs um, and, and, and whatnot were, were, you know, where folks would go to get their, 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 their associate's degree or their, their training or their tradesmanship, you know, and we weren't funding that and, and we should. So, so yeah, like, let's think about where, uh, what the world's going to look like in 10, 20 years, what these emerging technologies are and figure out how to, how to get those companies here, how to create them. Let's, uh, let's do what we should do. Let's take the wave, the visa requirements for all the smart people from Russia to get them to, to, to leave that country and come over here to the land of opportunity. Let's open up that can of, let's open up that, that can to, to everybody. And let's just bring the bright people over here. Let's bring the energetic and industrial people over and have them start companies, right? Immigrants start companies at rates far higher here in the U.S. than native-born folks do. And those are the folks that we want to have because they're going to create the jobs of the future. Yeah, it's another topic for another day, something we're working on for a future episode. But that labor gap, hmm, it's almost identical to the drop in immigration over the last two years. Isn't it funny how that works out? Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that in a future episode. One billion Americans, it unites both left pundits and right pundits. <laughs> yeah, let's let's open that can of worm another day, shall we? All right, here, a couple more of these real quick, though, because it is campaign season. We hear the same things over and over and over again. Uh, housing is starting to creep into campaign ads. I've actually seen some affordable housing ads. You never used to see those. I'm wow. for it. But the problem here is who makes it affordable? Because we all know when the government goes to make something affordable, it usually doesn't really end up being affordable. Uh, let's talk a minute. It's something I know you spend a lot of time thinking and digging into, but I've actually seen a couple campaign ads. They ran one in West Virginia about, um, they did a block grant for the whole state to get rid of blighted houses all at once because it makes it a lot cheaper to do, you know, because you yep. pay for 100 houses instead of 10. Smart yep. policy, I think. Yep. Uh, so credit to them. But I'm actually seeing some housing policies show up in campaign ads. You wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago. How does that hit your economic years? I mean, housing is the single biggest budget item in most families, most families budget. Um, we should focus on that if we want families to, to be better off. So, yes, I do a lot of work locally on trying to help expand housing supply. There's a lot of opportunities to do that. You know, here what we do is we, we like giving homeowners, uh, property owners options. Uh, I live in an area where um, you can build a single family house. You can also build a duplex if you want or a triplex. Um, you can build a tiny home out back. We call that an ADU or accessory dwelling unit. Uh, you could turn your basement into a grandma, you know, suite, live in an apartment and rent that out. You know, and those, those are options right there that I'm, that I'm saying those are options that local governments can can enact 
they just require a zoning change, possibly, or just a, a little you know, local policy change. But the local government doesn't expend any money to do it. And local governments are cash strapped. Other things that I've seen local governments do is they've said, look, um, we're not going to tell you how to build this new apartment complex. Right. But if you want to have your if you want to have a six story complex rather than a four story complex, um, we'd like for you to put X number of units and designate them affordable based on our affordability guidelines. And then we'll give you the, the variance to to build up higher, you know, like local governments can't really fund this, right? Um, they have to just basically provide the incentives for folks to do it on their own. Um, and so I, I agree with, with Andrew, like we've had experience of like, you know, look, we, we built section eight housing a long time ago in this country, right? And we, we, we concentrated low-income families into the same area. Uh, and that had uh, consequences that were not good for those low-income families. And now we're seeing a lot more mixed-use planning and development, mixed-income development, which, which, based on the research, you know, has better financial outcomes uh, for those lower-income persons, better financial stability, better household stability. So, you know, things that we can do for that. But it's not going to really come from a federal level, right? The federal government can't dictate zoning. That's a local thing. It's going to have to come from local folks saying, look, we, 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 want, we want people who have lived in this area to continue to live here, right? And we need to help that make that affordable, give them options. We want to have a diverse set of people, young and old, being able to live here. So we need to have a diverse set of housing options for them, you know, and try to, try to work change locally. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.